I'd like for you to turn this morning to the book of Philemon. Uh, the page of Philemon, let's put it that way. <laughs> book of Philemon. It's a small letter written by the Apostle Paul to Philemon and his household. And, uh, and I think that God has something in store for, uh, for us from this little tiny letter included in the New Testament. Why would God put this here? Why would he have us have this little letter in the canon of the New Testament? What is it about it that he wants us to know? We're going to be taking a look at that this morning. But before we do, I, I think it would be appropriate for, for us to ask the Lord to illuminate our hearts and minds as we prepare to look at the scriptures this morning. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your son, Jesus Christ, did give it all. and gave it all for us. And we've given back to you today with song. We've given back to you today with our offerings. We offered you our hearts in prayer. And now we're asking, Father, would you transform us by the renewing of our minds? Eliminate us, Father. Help us to see what you want us to see from your word. We believe that it is living, that it is active, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Would you please allow it to penetrate our hearts and our souls today that we would be transformed? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philemon. I won't say what chapter. There's only one. Philemon, verse 1. Follow along as I read aloud. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. To Aphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but, but, but better than as a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. 
And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is a pretty profound little letter. Uh, it's very personal, very intimate. It's, it's from Paul, and usually Paul, when we see in his letters, we call epistles, is that he's writing to a group of people or a specific church. He has a group in mind, but, but here we have a letter that's written to a man specifically, and by extension, his household of those who live with him, and it's written to Philemon. What we understand about Philemon, actually, is that it was a letter that was paired up with a couple of other letters, one of those being the book of Colossians. In fact, Onesimus, one of the main characters of this letter, is listed in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. And, and Paul says, I want you to receive Onesimus as one of you. And so we know that this letter was paired up with Colossians, and we also know from reading Colossians that that was paired up with another letter, which we do not have, which Paul wrote to the church at Laodicea. And so we have here Paul writing this letter, and we know that Paul wrote it from prison. In fact, we see that in, in Philemon 9, in Philemon 13, he says, I'm writing to you, Philemon, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And he also says, I'm, I'm in chains for the gospel, or I'm in chains in, or on behalf, or because of the gospel. And so we see the first main character from this little letter is its author, the Apostle Paul. Possibly could have written it from Rome, though we don't know for sure. We do know that Paul was in prison at one moment uh, in Rome uh, from the book of Acts. Uh, but we don't know that for sure that, that this was the time that he wrote it. He possibly could have written it uh, during another imprisonment that's not recorded in Scripture, perhaps even from Ephesus. Ephesus is another uh, possibility. So we see the author here. It's, it's the Apostle Paul. He's writing from prison. He's pairing it along with these letters that he's sending to the churches. But he sends a letter specifically to a man in his household, and that man is Philemon. And so the second character we have is the recipient. It's Philemon. And we see that Philemon was a leader of the ministry there at the church in Colossae. Paul refers to him as someone whom he loves and he also describes Philemon as someone who refreshes the hearts of the saints. What an excellent commendation to be actually be considered someone who refreshes other people's hearts. Maybe you have a person like that in your life. Maybe it's a family member or, or a good friend that you can't wait to see them because after you leave, your heart is going to be refreshed by their presence, by their encouragement by the words that they say. This was characteristic of Philemon, and Paul says it twice there. He says, you've refreshed the hearts of the saints, and Philemon, I'm asking you, that ministry that you have toward others, would you send it to me? I want to have your heart, my heart refreshed by you as well. So we see that the recipient is Philemon. One thing we know about Philemon, though, is in, in, is in connection with the next character. Philemon a brother in Jesus Christ who refreshes the hearts of the saints is also a slave owner. And that brings us to our third character, Onesimus. This was a letter written by Paul to Philemon about Onesimus. 
Onesimus, his name actually means useful. And, And the idea here is that perhaps Onesimus was born to a family who were slaves, which then made him the slave of the master of those who oversaw the family. And so it perhaps meant uh, his name means the, the fact that his owner knew he was going to be a slave and he named him Onesimus with the hopes that this will be a useful person to me. So Onesimus means useful. We know that I, Onesimus was a slave of Philemon who left his master. Left his master. Now you didn't do this lightly in the first century. If you leave your master and you're caught and it's found out that you're a slave, you could be punished severely. Nevertheless, Onesimus leaves Philemon. There are all kinds of circumstances, and and commentators, they love to conjecture. What were the circumstances? What was the source of the conflict? Because Onesimus leaves Philemon, and and he's gone, and, and we don't know. Was it because there was a conflict between the two of them that could not be resolved? Was it because Onesimus said, I am done being a slave. I want to pursue my freedom. And so he takes the risk of his life and he runs away as a slave fleeing from his master. We don't know exactly. Perhaps Paul said, you know what, or excuse me, Philemon. Maybe Philemon and Onesimus had such a sharp disagreement that they said, you know what, we're not going to solve this. Onesimus, you go find Paul and maybe he can help you out. We'll figure this out together. There's all kinds of scenarios. And I'm just going to give you a, a possible suggestion that I think could have happened. Perhaps Onesimus and Philemon came to such a sharp disagreement that they had to part ways. And so Onesimus left his master to seek out Paul for a resolution. I don't think that it's it's far-fetched to think that Onesimus knew who Paul was. Paul describes himself to Philemon. He says, I am your father in the Lord. You're like a son to me. And so as Philemon hears the gospel preached by Paul, Philemon is transformed. He's converted. He receives the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Onesimus, as a slave, sees all this happening, and he knows the influence that Paul has over Philemon. And so Onesimus goes searching for Paul. He says, I'm having so much trouble with my master. I know somebody who can help me out in regards to my master. So he goes searching for Paul. However the circumstances happen, some, some are led to believe that Onesimus is just fleeing from Philemon, and just by the providence of God, they come together. And that is, I mean, that is a really amazing thing to think about. I would love a movie to be made about that, right? This runaway slave run, runs into the apostle and is converted. And maybe that's the way it happened. Or perhaps Onesimus was seeking Paul out. However it happens, Onesimus comes in contact with Paul, who's in prison. And there they are together. And because they are together, Paul does what he does best. He shares the gospel with Onesimus. And Onesimus is converted to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, as Onesimus is converted, all of a sudden now, Paul says, okay, now we got to deal with something, Onesimus. You fled from Philemon, and now we got to work this out. You see, Paul understood the implications now of Onesimus saying, I am committing to Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. He says, Onesimus, I got to send you back to Philemon. I can imagine how that conversation went. You're sending me where? I have to go to whom? I have to go back to that guy? Really? Yep, you do. You do. If you call Jesus your Lord, you've got to be restored to this brother. 
And so there goes Onesimus, along with Tychicus, we know from Colossae. These two men go together, sent from Paul, and they're carrying these letters. The letter to Colossae, the letter to Laodicea, and this letter to Philemon. I, I can almost imagine Onesimus being like, man, what does this say? What does this say? Maybe he got to read it. I don't know. But he's sending it back and saying, I'm going to appear to my master, and I'm going to hand him this letter. Amazing. That's the story. That's the scene of the letter. But what's the conflict? I mean, you can imagine the conflict now. The conflict of the letter is this. Now that Onesimus is a Christian, how would Philemon receive him back? How would he receive back his former slave? What was Philemon to do? And I can imagine there they are sitting in the assembly at Colossae and in come Tychicus and here come Onesimus, and Philemon sees him, and whatever disagreement they had, I'm sure he feels all kinds of things. Maybe it's surprise, maybe it's shock, maybe it's bitterness and coldness of heart because of the disagreement they had, but here he comes back walking through the door, and Philemon is confronted with this. How will I receive back this former slave or the slave? Before we get into the letter, we just have to understand something about slavery in the first century. Because see here, in our day and age, in 2017, we have a conception of slavery that's, uh, that's framed by the, uh, the antebellum slavery of the South, okay? Uh, the, the slavery back then when uh, very ethnically based, very harsh, awful, tragic treatment of human beings. And so we carry a lot of our conceptions about what slavery is, and we insert it back into the first century. We have to just understand a couple of things of what slavery was like in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. Well, slavery in the first century had some similarities to uh, slavery that we, we would understand, but it was significantly different in these ways. First of all, the biggest difference was that it was not based on any specific ethnic group. You see, it didn't matter what color your skin was. It didn't matter what region of the world you came from. Anybody could be a slave. Anybody could be a slave. In fact, some people, if they came under real bad financial hardships, they would actually sell themselves as a slave so that they could provide for themselves and for their families. Um, so it was a big, big, huge economic uh, 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 aspect of the Greco-Roman world in fact, we believe that perhaps one in three people at this time were slaves. Uh, also in the first century, the roles of slaves varied greatly. I mean, they could perform very menial tasks, which is often what we would consider uh, today of, of what a slave would look like. They would do the very basest of things, the very hardest of work. But that was not the only way that a slave would be used in the first century. Sometime they would, sometimes they would hold high places in the household. They would have as much authority as maybe their master word of con uh, conducting business. And sometimes they would hold high places of honor within the government. And so it wasn't a specific kind of slavery. If you said you were a slave, it didn't mean that you were doing one task. It could have me meant a whole load of different kinds of occupations that you could have held as a slave. Sometimes, in fact, the slaves even had better living conditions than the people who were free because they were provided for, because they had food to eat, because they had a roof over their head. Slavery had a very different, different kind of feel in the first century. But in the end, 
when it all comes down to it, this is what it absolutely has in common. Whether you have a modern conception of slavery or we're talking about slavery in the first century, a slave was the property of his or her owner and was denied the rights of a free person. They were denied the rights of a free person. Did not have the same status. So Onesimus is over here, and he does not have the same rights and privileges as Philemon has. Very different status. And so we have to understand a few of these things about slavery in the first century before we can really understand what slavery is being talked about here in the book of Philemon. So although Onesimus was a slave of Philemon and had left him under bad circumstances, Paul now, in this little letter, urged Philemon to develop a new perspective about Onesimus and to welcome him back as a brother. As a brother. Why? Why? How could this be? How in the world could this man walk through the door now and be a different person to me? How could Paul expect that from Philemon? Here's why. Because the gospel that Paul preached and that Philemon and Onesimus had received was powerful enough to even transform the relationship between a slave and his master. What we have here in Philemon really is a case study to see how relationships that were formerly based on class and social structure, as well as even being divided by conflict, could be transformed by the power of the gospel in the lives of God's people. We've got pages and pages and verses and verses of Paul giving us amazing truths, amazing theology about the character of God, about the character of Jesus Christ, about his deity, about his sacrifice for sins, about his resurrection, about his purchasing a people, the church, and how to live as the church. All of this theology about who we are in Christ and how we are to live that out. But sometimes we wonder... Well, that's nice, but does it really work in the real world? What I believe we have here, here in Philemon is a case study of how the gospel has the power to transform every relationship of our lives. You may be asking here today, sitting in this pew, well, that, that sounds pretty amazing. What is this gospel that you're talking about? What is this gospel that Paul was preaching and that Philemon and Onesimus had received and believed upon? Well, put simply, the gospel is the message of the good news that God the Father has sent his son, Jesus Christ, in human flesh to rescue his people by bearing their sins upon the cross as the perfect sacrifice. And that he's rescued his people by victoriously rising from the dead and ascending back to heaven. And he will rescue his people because he's promised to return and raise them in newness of life to be with him forever. That's the simple gospel message. This was the hope that Paul had. This was the hope that Philemon had. And this was now the hope that a slave named Onesimus had. This is not just some lottery ticket, though. This wasn't just something that was going to be good and that they could kind of stick in their pocket until they died or until Jesus came back. No, this was a message that when it's received, transformed people from the inside out. 
This is a gospel that gives us hope. This is a gospel that gives God's people peace. And this is a, go- this is a gospel that transforms us even down to our everyday relationships. Paul's view of relationships was transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we have this case study of what it looks like in the lives of a slave and his master. Paul wrote about the gospel. He lived the gospel. And now he was calling Philemon to obey the gospel. Well, this letter shows us that the gospel transforms our relationships in three ways. Three ways from this letter of Philemon, we find that the gospel transforms our relationships. First, it transforms our motivation in our relationships. Secondly, it transforms our status with one another in our relationships. And thirdly, the gospel transforms our focus in our relationships. Let's look at the first way. The gospel transforms our motivation. Look at me in, with me at Philemon verses 8 through 9. Paul again says, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order, to, order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul was, the, he was not just an apostle. He was, he was really the main guy for all these churches outside of Israel. I mean, some of the Gentile churches, some of them knew Peter, some of them knew John, uh, but, but not many did. Paul was the main guy that was going around and establishing churches wherever he would go, and he would share the doctrine of, of the gospel with them, and he would, he would receive revelation and pass it on to them. I mean, it was amazing stuff that Paul did. He was an apostle. He was an authority for these people. And because he was an apostle, he carried all kinds of authority. But not only was he an apostle for Philemon, he was also his father in the Lord. He tells Philemon, you're, you're my son in the Lord. And so in another respect, Paul carried even more weight, even more authority because he led Philemon to the Lord. I'm sure he was right there as they prayed together and Philemon trusted and believed upon Jesus Christ. Paul was the one that, that brought him in that way. So Paul had a lot of authority, a lot of authority over Philemon. But look at what he says. He says, I could order you. I'm bold enough to do that. I know who I am to you, Philemon. I'm an apostle. I'm your father in the Lord. I could command you to do this, but I want to appeal to you in a different way. I want to appeal to you on the basis of love, of love. You see, Paul understood the implications of the gospel as it transforms us, as it changes us in our relationships. You see, our relationships cannot be sustained by law. Our relationships cannot be sustained by a set of rules or a set of commands. The only hope that we have to get along in this life and the next is because the gospel transforms us to fill our hearts with a new motivation. It fills our hearts with love. For one another. Paul understood, I could exert my authority right now on you, just like a child would. Look, I want you to take out the garbage right now. And I, I'm hoping that you do it because you love our family. But even if you don't do it for that reason, you're going to do it because I'm your father. Right? So this is kind of how Paul is treating this. But he understands there's something so much more powerful in the life of Philemon than a command or an ought to. It's love. 
It's love. He's appealing to the most powerful motivation that we could all experience as we're transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's love. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 13, 8 through 10. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Paul writes, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. There's Paul's theology right there. He's telling you, look, there's nothing more motivating in all the world in your relationships than the love that you experience from the gospel as it's poured out for one another. You could have a checklist today and say, hey, I love my spouse or I love my coworker because, hey, I didn't lie to them today. I didn't steal from them today. And I, I wanted to, but I didn't murder them today. Right? You could have this whole list. But friends, I'm telling you right now, there's nothing more powerful than the love of God in your hearts. The transforming power of the gospel gives us a motivation that no law could ever give us. And that's the command to love one another. Paul also writes in Galatians chapter 5, if you'd like to turn there. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15, says this, you, my brothers, were called to be free. Oh, Onesimus is standing up and he's applauding. Yeah, I like this. <laughs> you, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature, rather serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Friends, the only solution that we have to stop the conflict, to stop the biting, to stop the devouring is a love that's motivated by the power of the gospel. There is no law. There is no command. There is no rules. There is no program that can replace the love of God in our hearts. Philemon, uh, excuse me, Paul to Philemon is appealing to the highest of all motives when he says, I could command you, but I'm appealing to you from love. Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Man, now we take it even to the next level. It's not just love. It's the kind of love that God has shown to us. That's how we're to show love for one another. The greatest motivating factor in all the world in our relationships, friends, is love rooted in the gospel. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14, say this. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, 
Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul has said it over and over again. The greatest motivating factor that any of us have to to get along in our relationships is the motivating factor of love rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can almost hear uh, Paul putting it this way to Philemon. He would say something like this. Philemon, the gospel will motivate you to love Onesimus. I can give you a law, but that won't work. I know you, Onesimus. You love to refresh the hearts of the saints. I'm appealing to the highest motive in your heart. Love. Love this brother. Let me ask you, what motivates you when it comes to other people? Are are you just checking off the list with them, saying, eh, I'm a good friend. I've done the bare minimum. I had a group of you that helped my wife and I move last week, and we were overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, because... We could have hired some people to do it and spent, you know, hundreds of dollars and they would have come and they would have done the job. But these people that helped us move, they went above and beyond that. They didn't just help us move. They, They got us in and they got this refrigerator that doesn't fit through any doors or window in our house and they got it in somehow. And I still don't know how they do it. I don't see any hole in my roof, but they got it through. They got it through and they hooked it up for us. They got the washer and dryer. It wasn't just enough to get the washer and dryer in. They had to connect it for us. And I keep scratching my head. Man, don't they want to go home? Why do they keep doing this for me? It's because of love. It's because of love. That's the kind of stuff we do for each other. It's love. The highest motivation we could ever have. Do you feel just a moral obligation without any genuine concern for other people? The gospel has a higher motivation. Because of the love we've received in Jesus Christ, we, above all other people, should be motivated by intense love for our fellow man. Does the world look at us and see they, above all people, are loving people? Or do they think they, above all people, are judgmental people? Oh, God forbid. God forbid. The highest motivation in our relationships, the highest thing we could appeal to to get along with one another is love rooted in the gospel. The gospel transforms our motivation from obligation to love. The second way the gospel transforms our relationships is that it transforms our status. It transforms our status from earthly and temporary to heavenly and eternal. Look at Philemon 10 through 16. Philemon 10 through 16, Paul writes, I appeal to you, Philemon, For my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become both useful to you and to me. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, 
but even dear to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul is telling Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus back. But you got to understand something, Philemon. That man who's walking through those doors, he left you and he was useless. And Paul's doing a play on words here. You can't see it necessarily in the English. But Onesimus, useful and useless, in, in the original language, they all sound identical. He's saying, this guy who was useful, whose name was useful, became useless, but now he's useful to you again. That man who's walked through this door is a different person. He's not the same guy you've always known. He's not a slave any longer to you. He's more than that to you now. He is a brother. He is a brother. You could almost hear Paul saying something like this, Philemon. The gospel must change how you view Onesimus. He's no longer a slave, but he's a brother. Paul has said these kinds of things before in his letters. Read Galatians chapter 3 with me. Galatians chapter 3, 26 to 28. Galatians 3, 26 to 28 says this. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It was, it was at the foundation of Paul's theology that one of the greatest implications of the gospel was this. We're not different anymore in Christ Jesus. There's no difference any longer for us in our status in heaven. And that doesn't stop. That doesn't mean I'm not a man anymore. That doesn't mean that I'm a, not a Caucasian anymore. That doesn't mean that I'm not six feet anymore and some of you are shorter and some of you are taller. We still maintain our differences. However, in Christ Jesus, our status is all the same. We are all heirs. And not just heirs, we're sons. Now, he didn't say sons and daughters because daughters didn't have the same rights and privileges that the sons did in, in a household at this time. What he's saying is all of you have full access to all the inheritance that God has promised for you. When you look at each other, don't see a Jew, don't see a Greek, don't see a male or a female, don't see a slave or a free, but we should all see each other as having the exact same status before God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says something very similar in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to this one too, it sounds similar, but you got to see this was a major part of Paul's theology of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verses 8 through 11 says, but you must now rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Maybe that was the core of Philemon and Onesimus' disagreement. Maybe they had lied to each other. Maybe Onesimus had lied to him. But he says, now you're no longer to lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in, the no in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, here 
in the church, in this church, here, in the household of God, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Paul is saying we're... We all have the same status in the household of God. Philemon, it's not right for you to treat Onesimus any longer as a slave. You've got to welcome that man as a brother now. Christ has changed his status here in the household of faith. Friends, when you look across this room, I'm so blessed for the the ethnic diversity we share here in this room. I love it. But I hope that when we all walk in here together... We don't all see skin colors. We don't all see male and female. We all ought to be seeing family. 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 Through Jesus Christ, he's brought us together. We are one through Jesus Christ. This is an unmistakable, and this is an unavoidable implication of the gospel. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ... You're brought into the family. You're brought into the family. The gospel transforms our status. Philemon, Paul would say, the gospel must change how you view Onesimus. He's no longer a slave. He's a brother. Embrace him. He's even better than a slave. He's useful to you now, and now you must embrace him as you would embrace me, a brother in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, how do you view other people? What's the perspective that you have? Do you see status? Do you see the car they drove in? Do you see the clothes that they're wearing? Do you see the color of their skin or whatever that may be, their disability or lack of disability? What do you see? Do you judge others maybe by ethnicity? Do people have a place? Let me ask you this. Do people have a place at the table with you simply because they're a brother and sister in Jesus Christ? Do you make room at your table for others who may not look like you but who share the same status as you through Christ? When was the last time you had someone who was vastly different from you, maybe from a cultural perspective or some other perspective? When was the last time you had someone vastly different from you in your home? Are we hospitable and welcoming to one another simply because we all belong to the family of God and because we all bear God's image? Has the gospel transformed how you view other people? Men, has has the gospel transformed how you look at the women of this church? Are they merely sex symbols or are they family, sisters in Christ? How do you view your wives, men? I I tell you, my wife, she can run circles around me in so many ways. I've learned in so many ways that she is not just my equal. She's beyond me in so many ways. Are you a chauvinist or do you see the value in every single person created in God's image and certainly the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ? How about your kids? How do you view your kids? Are they simply to be seen and not heard? They don't have the same value as you as an adult? Or do you see them as potential, possible future brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ? My relationship to my sons and my daughter, oh, it'll last as long as we're both here on this earth. But I hope and I pray that someday I will stand next to them, not as dad, but as brother, as brother in Jesus Christ. How do you view the relationships in your life? 
Do you view them according to status or have you allowed the gospel to transform you so that you could see people the way Jesus sees them? Finally, first we saw that the gospel transforms our motivation from obligation to love. Secondly, we see that the gospel transforms, uh, excuse me, the gospel transforms our perspective so that we see people with a new status. And thirdly, the gospel transforms our focus. It transforms our focus from self-centered to self-sacrificing like Jesus Christ. Look at uh, Philemon again. Philemon 17 to 21 says this. Paul finally gives his first command. He's been appealing up to this point, And finally he says, here's what I want you to do. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him. That's Onesimus. Welcome Onesimus as you would welcome me. If he's done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul is so passionate about this reconciliation, a renewed, restored relationship between Philemon and Onesimus that he says, look, if he costs you anything, if he's harmed you in any way, if he's stolen anything from you, charge it to me. Do not hold it against Onesimus any longer. I'm willing to suffer loss so that Onesimus could be brought into this family and that he would be welcomed into this church and so that he would have a new status and so that he would be loved by all of you. Friends, I hope you can hear this kind of language and I hope that it's unmistakable to you to hear what Christ has done for us. Paul is saying, I'm coming to you just like what Jesus has done for me. Jesus has paid my debts. Jesus has taken away all of the wrongs that I've done against him. He's taken upon all the charge of all my guilt and all my shame and he's put it on himself so that I could be in the family and I want Onesimus to be in the family too. I want him to be welcomed. This is the kind of love that's not self-serving, it's self-sacrificing for the benefit of another. Paul is saying, look, I've experienced it in Jesus, and now I'm going to do the same. I'm going to pass it on. This is how the gospel transforms our relationships. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 through 9, he says, I am commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love, church at Corinth, by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The richness of Jesus given up, he becomes poor, he gives of himself, he sacrifices himself so that he can make others rich. The gospel transforms our relationships. We're not afraid to suffer loss on behalf of another because when we look at it at the end of the day, how much have we gained by the loss of our Savior Jesus Christ? Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 say this. 
Paul writes again, Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Friends, the gospel transforms our relationships. It transforms our relationships so much so that we can agree with Paul and say, in order for someone else to feel welcomed, to feel loved, to know that they have a new status in this place, I'm willing to suffer loss for it. I'm willing to suffer loss for it. When was the last time any of us gave up our own personal comforts and our own personal privileges for the sake of another? Paul was telling Philemon, this is the kind of transforming power that the gospel has in our relationships. It teaches us to love. It teaches us that we're all brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. And it teaches us to sacrifice ourselves for the benefit of others. Paul is telling Philemon, I'm willing to suffer loss so that Onesimus is welcomed into the group because that's how Christ has treated us. Let me ask you, What's your focus in your relationships? Have you allowed the gospel to transform your focus from self-centeredness to self-sacrifice? Do you sacrifice in your marriages? Do you sacrifice as a parent? Do you sacrifice as a grandparent? What would it look like if we started giving ourselves on the job to our coworkers? What would it start looking like if we gave ourselves in line at the grocery store to our neighbors? What would it look like if we allowed the gospel to transform our relationships from being self-centered people to self-sacrificing people? What would it look like? When was the last time you gave up anything for yourself for the benefit of another without any expectation? to receive something in return. That's the love of Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's how it transforms us. A few closing questions. Have you allowed the gospel to transform the relationships in your life? Are you willing to let love be the motivating factor? Are you willing to start looking at people the way Jesus looks at people? And are you willing to start sacrificing yourself for the good of others? Maybe today you're in a conflict. Maybe you're in a sharp conflict. Maybe you're in a conflict that's been going on so long that it's been years that you've spoken with uh, another person that you're in conflict with. I'm sure many of you feel the pain and the hurt of broken relationships. Maybe today you're in an, an Onesimus. You've wronged someone done something. You fled or stolen. Or who knows what it could be. Maybe you're an Onesimus. You've wronged somebody. Perhaps you've even taken from them. Today's the day the power of the gospel transforms our relationships. Go and seek forgiveness. Go and seek restoration. Get on the phone with that person this afternoon. Seek them out. Maybe it happened this morning on the way to church with your spouse. Seek restoration. Love the status of brother or sister and self-sacrificing. Or today, maybe you're a Philemon. Maybe you've been withholding your love from someone. Maybe you need to change your perspective about that person. Maybe it's time for you to give of yourself so that you can see that relationship restored. God is telling you today, there isn't any counseling. There isn't any psychology. There isn't any pill that can heal your relationships like the power of the gospel. Will we submit to it and obey it?
and allow it to transform our relationships. Well, when we see the love and sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the gospel, the only reasonable response is to love each other with the same kind of love. If God can transform the relationship of a master and a slave through the gospel, friends, he can transform ours too. Will you submit to the gospel? Will you love? Will you see people the way Jesus sees them? Will you sacrifice yourself the way Jesus sacrificed himself for you? Let's pray. Father, where would we be without the love of Jesus Christ? Where would we be? Oh, we certainly wouldn't be all in this building together if God didn't give us a new status, if you didn't do something in our lives. I thank you that there are so many people in here that don't look just like me. They don't think just like me. But because of Jesus Christ, we can call each other brother and sister. And Father, I thank you that I don't have to be afraid to sacrifice myself for the benefit of my spouse, my kids, my friends, my family, because I know much more has been given to me through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Would you please transform our relationships? We believe that your gospel is powerful enough to do it. We want to submit ourselves today and say, we want to live out our relationships in the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, friends. God bless.